Well, we started last week an introduction to the book of First Peter, looking at some background, getting a better understanding of the book. And we read verses 1 and 2, and I will read those again this morning. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. So we started studying this, looking first at the servant Peter. Secondly, and this is where we stopped, seeing about the strangers scattered. And then our last point, which hopefully we'll get to today, the salutation given. Let us again look to the Lord for guidance. Father, I pray you'd help us, Lord, to walk with you as you command us in Micah to be do justly, to um, love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. Lord, I pray that each of us would strive to be pleasing to Christ in our lives day by day, reaching the lost with the gospel of Christ. Lord, I pray now you bless now as we continue this study in 1 Peter. Again, teach us from your word. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we started this, we looked a little bit about Peter, who declares his apostleship. We've seen that he was one of, if you will, the inner circle with Christ. There's many times where he had the 12 with him, but then he pulled part three. And those three usually were Peter, James, and John. We went and reviewed a little bit about how Peter often spoke before engaging brain. I think we've all been guilty of that a time or two in our lives, if we were honest with ourselves. Engaging mouth before engaging brain. I know I've done it once or twice, or maybe more times than I care to count. (laughs) Peter's the one who adamantly said, I will never deny you, yet few hours later is cussing and and trying to fit in with the crowd, make sure that they understand he is not a follower of Jesus Christ. By the way, I had a good talk last night with uh, Royce Williams. Some of you may remember him. And we were talking about, he says, you know, he says, I believe every problem we have, every sin ultimately comes down to pride and selfishness. I said, well, the Bible does say only by pride cometh contention. I said, that's a very powerful thought, only by pride. How often do we act in pride? I know, as the Holy Spirit exposes the pride of my life, I find it very frustrating, because pride is very hard to self-diagnose by what it is. And we've really got to keep asking, as David did, for the Lord to shine the light in our heart to see if there be any wicked way in us, to see that pride in us. Because we are naturally very proud creatures. And it's a shame that the humanists teach what you need to do is think more highly of yourself. You know what the problem is? We already think way too highly of ourselves. We need to think highly of Christ. Josh was telling me he talked to somebody recently who's involved in politics. And they said, well, I've been in this position for this so long, and I've been doing this and that and the other thing. I deserve respect. 
I deserve this position. I deserve all these things. And I was proud of Josh's response. He said, I looked at the individual and said, we don't deserve anything. You know, that's the truth. You know what I deserve? I deserve eternity separated from God in hell. That's what I truly deserve. Anything other than that is much better than I deserve. I've told you before about my, one of my mentors in life, Neil Beers. And that used to be one of his expressions he would use all the time is, you'd ask him, Neil, how you doing? Better than I deserve. I told somebody that once. Somebody asked me that and said, they said, how you doing? I said, better than I deserve. They said, well, that's a very pessimistic attitude. I said, no, it's not. I deserve eternity separated from God and hell, and I'm doing much better than that. Well, that's very pessimistic of you. I'm like, how is that pessimistic? That's what I truly deserve. I'm doing so much better. And like, yeah, but you deserve more. You deserve, I said, no, I don't. No, I don't. Well, you should think more highly that you deserve more. You should think you should, you, you should be striving, blah, blah, blah. I said, I'm, not, I'm striving to do better in my life, yes. I said, it's as, but I understand where I deserve, what I deserve, where I should be, where I am. It doesn't mean that I'm not striving to do even better, what, but I understand I am doing better than I deserve. They couldn't understand the concept. But Christian, that concept needs to be in us and part of us all the time. When we're tempted to complain, stop and think, I'm still doing better than I deserve. Trust me, when we learn to do that, as we learn to do that, it truly will help change our thinking. I'm doing better. Again, the book was written somewhere around A.D. 63, just before the persecution of Nero really started intensifying. And I believe there was already starts of it, if I recall correctly, in 63. But it really, really started in 64. The place we talked about, Babylon, could be encrypted for Rome, um, but not exactly sure. Peter was martyred in Rome in about A.D. 68. The theme of the book is preparing for suffering to come. Suffering is mentioned 16 times, and I gave you those references. Then we talked about strangers scattered. So he says, to the strangers scattered, and then mentions these areas and regions in which they are scattered. And we again need to be reminded we're just pilgrims here on earth. The more I see things around this world, I more I am glad this is just temporary. It gets better from here. Now, I love the beauty of God's creation. I love going to the mountains. I mean, if you can't go to the mountains and just start singing praise to God, there's something wrong with you, you know? It's just gorgeous what God has created. You go to the ocean and you see the beauty again of what God has created. Just absolutely astounding. Sunrises and sunsets. For some young people, I'll explain the sun comes up as slowly as it goes down at night. It doesn't just peer, appear in the morning, okay? Just in case you were wondering. <laughs> First Peter 2.11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. They were scattered. Now, perhaps some of these had heard Peter on the day of Pentecost. If you go back, you see some of these same regions mentioned. So, it's possible some of these people to whom he's writing heard him 
back then. But this letter is addressed to Christians scattered over these five Roman provinces of modern-day Turkey. But God has now scattered the church around the globe to give the gospel to those who need to hear. We call the South here, this area, the Bible Belt. And actually, if you study American history, you understand part of the reason is because there were many churches started in the South by men like Shubal Stearns and whatnot who, who really had a desire to, to see the Word of God um, preached and churches established. And we are reaping the benefits of their labors years ago. But let me tell you something. The South has changed. Here's the problem. The definitions of Christianity have changed. You see, I talk to a lot of people who will say things like, well, we're all Christians. You know, just because I was born in the South and I went to church and my great-grandpappy was a preacher, well, obviously I'm a Christian. I've heard these type of explanations, and I'm sure you have as well. You know, the hard part I find about many here in the South is helping convince them that they're lost and need Jesus Christ because they think they're okay. Too many people here think they're okay because they go to church. They've been baptized. My grandfather was a a preacher. I mean, I've heard it all. You name it. I've heard it. And I'm sure you have as well. But none of those things are going to save. It's only faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, I believe in God. Well, that's great. So do the devils, and they tremble. What do you mean by believing God? Right? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone? Oh, yeah, I've been baptized. No, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you realized your sinfulness? Oh, I go to church every week. They don't even listen to the question. Sometimes you wonder, are you hearing me? Hello? But you understand the problem is is not that they're not listening. They have no clue what you're talking about because they've never been presented the truth from God's Word. They've been told in the churches, you're okay because you're here. You're a good person. Get baptized and you'll be saved. No! That's all a lie. And you and I have a responsibility to preach the gospel here. Don't assume just because we're in what was known as the Bible Belt that people do not need Jesus Christ. There are many lost people around us, and you and I are planted here for a purpose of telling them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our primary focus in life needs to be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, I'm preaching to myself as much as I am anybody else. Sometimes it's easy to get wrapped up in other things and forget the primary purpose of our lives is preaching the gospel. I have found, and we have gone door to door, I have found sometimes it seems to work, sometimes it doesn't because people have in their minds uh, whatever. And I have also known other churches that go and I think with good intentions have overstayed their welcome, if you will. And then when you say you're from a Baptist church, all of a sudden they lump you in with them. I understand some of these things, these issues we deal with, but here's the thing. It doesn't negate our responsibility to go and tell others about Christ. And while many churches still have organized times when they get together and go out, the truth is the command is go, that's as you go. 
It's not a time you turn on and turn off for two hours. This is my visitation time. But that's how, much, how many Christians end up viewing our responsibility to share the gospel. It's as you go, as you meet people, as you come in contact with this lost world, you need to be looking for opportunities to share the gospel. So whether it's sitting at a restaurant, whether it's standing in line, you know, the beauty of living here in the South is you can stand in a grocery line and talk to other people and they don't think, what do you want? Don't do it up North, although I do, but up North, they do look at you like, what do you want? When you get the annoying telemarketers and they got all these questions for you, say, I got a question for you. If you were to die, do you know for certain you spend eternity in heaven? I've done it already. They hang up sometimes. Hey, you didn't have to hang up on them then. It's a pretty good day when you can get the telemarketer and hang up on you. This would have predominantly been a Gentile audience. Now, he then goes in verse 2, showing the Trinity is involved in salvation. It says, the foreknowledge of the Father. And we talked about foreknowledge does not equal foreordination. It says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So God already knows, doesn't mean he caused it to happen. And he calls them the elect. Again, I use the illustration of, when you stand outside the gates, you see over the gates, whosoever will. When you step inside the gates, <clears throat> you look back, you see God's elect. It's the best way I can explain it. God already knew. He couldn't help but know. But those who put their faith in Christ, those who truly accept Jesus Christ as Savior, are the elect. And then we talked about the sanctification of the Spirit. So elect according to foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit. Aren't you thankful at the moment you were saved, the righteousness of Jesus Christ was imputed to your account, and God the Father sees you as righteous as he does his son Jesus Christ? I want you to think about that. Stop and think about that for a moment. When you, when God looks at you, he sees you as righteous as his son, Jesus Christ. Because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to your account. Is that not what Romans, Paul teaches us in the book of Romans? Now, if that is so, and since that is so, you and I then need to strive to have that practically in our lives. That is the growing in sanctification and the growing in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that is to be changed in the image of his dear son, which the book of Ephesians tells us God has predestinated us to be changed into the image of Christ. God has predetermined that you as a believer are to be changed into the image of Christ so that when the world sees you, they don't see you, they see a reflection of Jesus Christ. Is that happening in your life? Now, that will be a lifelong process because none of us are going to reach perfection this side of glory. Now, there is the positional, God sees us as righteous, the practical, where we are today, but future, there's going to be the perfected when Christ comes and we are raptured out of here, and we put off this mortal body, and we put on immortality, we put off this sinful nature, and we have a glorified body, we then are going to stand truly righteous before him. Again, not my own righteousness, but clothed in his righteousness. 
But you know, our desire throughout our life should be that the change has to be, if I can say, less of a change. In other words, we should be growing more like Christ, so it's not this big, huge change at the rapture, but it's less of a change because we've been growing more like Him all along. Does that make sense? When the world sees you, do they see Christ in you? Now, I'll use what I just read to you about what was posted about us earlier. According to this individual, we're not showing Christ-likeness because we turn people away. I have no idea to what incident they may be referring to. We don't turn people away who are in need willy-nilly. But when I get phone calls saying, does your church help with Christmas gifts for my kids? I'm sorry. I'm going to surprise some. Christmas gifts are not a need. So the answer is no. The rest of them I have referred to organizations that can help them, whether it be for food or rent assistance or whatever. Because truthfully, no, we do not have set-aside funds to help people with rent and with utilities and everything else. Okay? Now, I understand some would say, well, that's part of benevolence. Well, I believe benevolence should start at home first, don't you? If we're going to take care, we should take care of our own first. Now, I'm not saying we can't meet the needs of the world, but let me tell you something. There's a lot who would, there's a lot that would go into it. Trustees and I have had many conversations about this, haven't we? Of talking about, you know, how would you screen people? How would you know the legitimate needs from the non-legitimate needs? And also, where do you draw the line? Because truthfully, you could take every penny this church has and start handing it out because people would know, and then next thing you know, everybody has a need. And, and I'm not trying to belittle their needs, okay? I'm just trying to say we have a responsibility here as a church to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, really, truthfully, when we see a need of an individual as a Christian, we should pray about that matter and take care of it as individuals. I think that's a whole lot better than taking care of it corporately as a church. And I've tried to do that as I see people who have legitimate needs. I've met people who legitimately need a meal. I've met people who legitimately need a little bit of gas. Okay? And it doesn't hurt me to put a little bit of gas in their tank or to buy them a hamburger. You see what I'm saying? Well, that was a little bit off topic. Let's go move on now. Verse 2. Elect according to knowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Verses 18 and 19. For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Folks, we need to stop and think about the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The blood that He shed on our behalf. Under obedience and sprinkling of the blood, it's applied to each to receive Him. Now, the blood of Christ is sufficient for all, is it not? But it's only applied to those who receive Christ as Savior. It's sufficient for all. But you know, in the same way God gave Adam a choice, He still gives men a choice today. He has provided a way of salvation. He has made it uh, plain. He's made it clear that 
Salvation is through Christ alone, and all can have that blood applied, but God is still given the individual responsibility to receive the payment of sin that Jesus Christ has already paid. It's personal. Again, joining a church doesn't save you. Being born into a Christian family doesn't save you. There is a false theology that basically teaches this umbrella theory of if the father saved, then the children are saved. They're under the umbrella of the father that automatically brings them into the family of God. That doesn't even make sense. Because God has said numerous times throughout Scripture that we are accountable for ourselves. Period. But I'm glad the sacrifice of Christ was a permanent sacrifice. I'm glad we don't have to do sacrifices of sheep and goats and rams and bulls and all kinds of other animals because when Christ shed his blood, it was sufficient and it was once for all. Isn't that fantastic, folks? Well, I'll tell you what. We need to start writing letters with these kind of salutations. That's pretty neat. Elect according to foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit and obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Boy, if that didn't get these Christians excited, thinking about what Peter is writing to them. But Christians, be reminded that we're just pilgrims in this world. We are in this world, but we're not of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3.20, for our conversation, our manner of living is in heaven. From whence you also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm to live heavenly. Do I do a good job of that? Unfortunately not, as well as I need to be. But I'm an ambassador of Christ, and I need to live like an ambassador from heaven to this world. Well, let's move on then to the last point, the salutation given. And as I said last week, similar to the greetings Paul gave. It says, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Grace, the kindness, the goodwill, God's righteous assistance, Christ extends, is one definition I've heard. Salvation is by grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For by grace are you saved. Do I deserve salvation? No, I deserve, as we looked at a little bit ago, eternity separated from God in hell. Beyond mercy, God has extended grace that we can have not just avoiding hell, but we can have eternity with Him in heaven. Well, that's what's so going to be so glorious about heaven, is we're going to be there with Christ for all eternity. The one who died for me, the one who shed his blood for me, I get all eternity to spend with him. You know, we talk about the great reunions we're going to have with uh, family members that have gone on, and those are going to be great times. We talk about sitting down with Moses and saying, Moses, what was it like? You know, sitting down with some of the saints that we read about in the scriptures. And those are going to all be exciting, but let me tell you something. All of it's going to pale in comparison to being with our Lord and Savior and worshiping Him throughout the ages. That's what's going to make heaven glorious. 
As a matter of fact, I can partly imagine when we sit down with Paul and say, Paul, what was it like? He's just going to say, you know what? It doesn't matter. Just look at what Christ has done for us. Why don't we just go worship him some more? You know, I mean, I don't know. Of course, I think also that God's going to create a new heaven and new earth. And when I talked, you know, I just talked a little bit ago about the beauty of this earth in which we live. Think about the new one he's going to create. I mean, just to sit there and, and as we stand in awe of what he's created, we're going to be giving him the glory for it because he's the one that made it. It's going to be exciting. But we got to finish our pilgrimage here. we got to finish being strangers here on earth. But Peter also says over in 2 Peter 3.18 that we're to grow in grace. Grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we need to be growing in grace. But then also, he not only mentions about the grace being unto you, but peace. Now again, this is interesting because remember, this is right before the intense persecution of Nero would be starting. And, and I'm sure, again, some of it has already been happening. I know there's already been persecution of the church up to this point, but it's going to intensify. And he reminds them, you can still have peace. Christian, you and I can have peace no matter the circumstances because you and I need to stop living under the circumstances. It's an interesting expression we use in modern society. How are you doing today? Well, okay, okay, considering the circumstances. Well, doing fine under these circumstances. Well, here's your problem. You're living under the circumstances. We're to be more than conquerors. We're not to be living under the circumstances. We're to be living above the circumstances. And so it doesn't matter the circumstances of life. I know several things. Okay, we'll go back and review. I know what I deserve is an eternity separated from God in hell. But I know that Jesus loved me and God loved me enough that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross at Calvary for me and he shed his blood for me. And I know that when I put my faith and trust in him, I can know that I have eternal life. I know my sins have been forgiven. I know I am adopted into God's family. I know that when I die, I will not spend a moment where I deserve, but I will spend eternity with him in heaven. I know these things. Therefore, why should I fret as the world frets? Why should I worry? Why can't I have a perfect peace? Does not the scripture tell us, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. I want you to think about that verse again. Royce and I talked about that verse as well last night. Great peace have they which love thy law, and what shall offend them? Nothing. So if we're easily offended, what does that say? According to Scripture, if I'm very easily offended, what does that say? Been guilty of that too. But I'm glad, Romans 5.1, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we were saved, we were the enemies of God. This world is seeking peace. And this world will never find peace apart from Jesus Christ. Some think... If I could just have a little more money, life would be peaceful. But you look at some of the richest people this world has ever known, and they had no peace. Some think that they'll find peace getting one more high. But the problem is, they're always chasing that first experience. You understand why people 
from my understanding, the reason why they get more and more drugs and why they start tampering with all these other additives in the drugs is because nothing ever gives quite the euphoria of the first high, and they're always chasing that first high all over again. Peace will not be found at the bottom of a bottle. Peace will not be found in all the things the world tries to find peace in. But peace is only found in Jesus Christ. When, we, when he reconciles to us to God, and we have peace with God. Instead of being enemy of God, we finally can have peace with God. He is my father. Why should I not be at peace with him? Right? And when there is tension in a relationship, it's not his fault, it's mine. Right? Hence the reason why 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, when I sin against God as a Christian, I am thankful it doesn't end my relationship with God, but it breaks fellowship with God. And in order to restore that fellowship, I come to him and say, Lord, I confess. The Greek word is homo logos. Homo, same, logos, word. Saying the same thing that God says about my sin. Seeing my sin the way God sees it, if you will. But then, not only can we have peace with God, but we can have the peace of God. Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. The peace of God. Colossians 3.15 tells us, Let the peace of God roll in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Now, he says, Grace be unto you, and peace be multiplied, or to increase, or abound. As we walk in the grace of God, we should recognize His grace more and more. As we learn to live by faith, we can experience more of the peace of God. As we learn more about the character of our God, we understand more about the grace and the peace of God. As we learn to live with the peace of God ruling in our hearts, we will increase more in peace and more in grace. Isn't that beautiful how that works? But Christian, you and I need to every day die to self, realize that we're just strangers and pilgrims here on this earth, and ask God for His grace and His peace. God will give the needed grace as we need it. There's a song that talks about there'll be a new grace when it's my time to die. I forget all the words to the song, but basically it talks about there's been grace for every trial, grace for every mile. There's been God's grace to guide me this far. But he has not given me dying grace yet. You know why? I don't need it yet. But you know the beauty of it is? Is when it comes my time to die, God's going to give the grace needed to do that too. Isn't that amazing? He gives you the grace as you need the grace. But he is giving you sufficient grace for today. He's given you sufficient grace for the trial you have today. Now listen, I, there have been many times in my life when I've gotten on my face before God and I have said, God, I can't handle anymore. This is far above me. And it's as if he reaches down and says, I know. 
but my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. The time, and my wife remembers timelines better than I do, but it just seemed like a jumbled mess in my mind. I was in college. The church that we had, my wife had grown up in, the church that I had served in for three years, was going through a major split. Her brother had been arrested and was being sent to jail. And my mother attempted suicide was one of those times when I was on my face before God and said, I cannot handle anymore. His grace is what got me through. He gave the grace needed to get me through. And folks, it's okay to get before God and say, I can't handle this. He already knows that. But he's willing to pour out that grace. And I can't explain it. But there's something that carried me through, and it wasn't me. You know what I'm talking about? If you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It'll be multiplied. It'll increase. It'll bound. So let us grow in grace and know the peace of God. Let's close with a word of prayer.